Welcome to Blue Hour, a podcast for seekers and thinkers, creatives and dreamers. Here we'll be exploring the convergence of shadow and light, the mysteries of life, and the musings of the soul through psychology, art, and spirituality. I'm your host, Adina Arden Cooper. Please join me on this magical journey as we expand our consciousness and infuse our lives with more wonder, love, and fulfillment. We've been digging into origin stories by exploring factors that contribute to the narratives we tell ourselves about ourselves. My hope is that in doing so, we can gain some perspective, some self-awareness, to help grow self-compassion and personal empowerment. Today we're talking about religion and the ways it impacted us growing up. I'm sure many listeners still find comfort, guidance, or positivity in the religion they were raised with. If so, then this factor remains a positive aspect of your origin story. Others, however, may have had a more complicated relationship with religion growing up. I've worked with a number of clients who felt oppressed or even traumatized by their religion of origin. Disentangling from the influence of religion is often about disentangling from shame. I've seen this within various faith traditions. Religious trauma is enough of an issue that some therapists specialize in its treatment. It occurs whenever religious beliefs or practices cause harm, which may be physical or emotional. We've all heard stories of priests sexually abusing children, which is an obvious example of religious trauma. It's not always that overt, however. Religious trauma may also occur when experiences are processed through a religious lens in a way that's harmful. For example, it may be traumatic for some people to experience or witness a seriously distressing event and then be told simply to pray about it or that it was God's will. Or it may be traumatic if your parents stayed together in an unhappy, volatile, or even violent relationship because divorce wasn't permitted by their religion. Or if you were told you'd be punished or go to hell if you live a certain way, if you're gay, for example, or if you have sex before marriage. Religious communities may also inflict trauma through their attitudes and treatment towards community members. And certain religious groups may be traumatized by other people's treatment towards them, as in the case of anti-Semitism or Islamophobia. Symptoms of religious trauma include shame, feeling like you're bad or wrong for behaving or feeling a certain way or for being who you are, self-loathing, which happens when you don't meet the standard or ideal set forth, self-suppression, when you hide away aspects of yourself in an effort to meet the standard or at least appear to, Debilitating perfectionism, striving to meet approval and gain acceptance by doing all the right things. Anxiety, hypervigilance, or paranoia, which may result from being afraid of God's judgment or feeling as if you're always being watched and evaluated. Sexual dysfunction, which can stem from pressure for abstinence, monogamy, 
gender normativity or heterosexuality. Social isolation due to feeling unaccepted or even being excommunicated by the community. Indecision and confusion. Inability to think for yourself or make independent decisions because you've been taught that you must rely on a higher external authority for guidance. Of course, this list is not exhaustive. Religious trauma can have deep and far-reaching impact on people, so it's important to reflect on the role religion played in your upbringing and how that affected your identity and beliefs. Religion was a dominant yet strange influence on me as a child. My grandparents were my primary caregivers. As Ashkenazic Jews, faith was wrapped up in tradition and culture. While my grandmother adhered to the traditions, she didn't always abide by the religious practices. My grandfather, on the other hand, did. But as a natural nonconformist, he did everything in his own way. So a lot of his practices were infused with other practices. So to illustrate some of this, um, I'll address the Sabbath, which begins at sundown on Fridays and ends at sundown on Saturdays. During that time, Hasidic Jews, Orthodox Jews, do not drive, watch TV, operate any electronics, or even use electric lights. The idea is to eliminate distractions and luxuries so you can focus on prayer and devotion. My grandfather attended synagogue daily. My grandmother, however, only went on high holidays. So on the Sabbath, he would go, and the TV and lights would be on until he got home. Then we'd quickly turn everything off. On Saturdays during the day, as soon as my grandfather left, my grandmother would sneak us out of the house, load us onto the city bus because she didn't drive, and we'd head downtown for a day of shopping and eating out. My grandfather never ate at a restaurant, at least not during my lifetime, because he strictly kept kosher. Grandma kept kosher at home, but ate out all the time. Anyway, after we'd wandered through the old department stores and gobbled down our meals and treats, we'd head home, sometimes rushing to make it back before my grandfather. When I was little, I believed we'd successfully pulled one over on him, and the thrill of secrecy made the whole excursion even more fun and exciting. Now, I suspect he probably knew what was going on, but just didn't say anything about it. I won't get too into the many unhealthy elements that were ingrained in me from this breaking the rules, being dishonest with your spouse, being afraid to be yourself or do what you want. I'll merely point out the conflict religion created between doing what was expected and what was desired. This confusion was compounded by my grandfather's own divergence from expectation. Like I said, while he followed many of the rules, he also opted out of some. And he infused his own practices with, with many other things. So it looked its own unique way. And he looked his own unique way. He certainly didn't look the part of a typical Hasidic Jew. He never wore a beard or pass, which are those side curls. In addition to that, while religion was a part of my life at my grandparents' house, it wasn't much of a thing when I was with either of my parents. So my experience ranged from a strict Hasidic Orthodox experience to eating bacon for breakfast. 
While this inconsistency was experienced at home, I was being educated by my grandfather's insistence at a private Jewish day school, where half of the school day was spent focused on religious studies. There, my young and permeable brain was being infiltrated by a whole litany of misogynistic beliefs and traditions. Of course, it was not only that. I learned some interesting history, some mythology, as well as some beautiful traditions. But my biggest takeaway was that I am inherently a less valuable human because I am female. I attribute that not to my religion, but to the assholes teaching the religion. Sadly, at the time, I didn't understand patriarchy or misogyny and could not argue or dispute the information that was presented to me. Even if I had, I'm sure I would have been reprimanded or invalidated. This notion of the inferiority of girls was perpetuated in my household and also at the only synagogue I attended. My sister and I only attended synagogue when my grandmother went on high holidays, so we were not part of the regular community like my grandfather was. It was a Hasidic Orthodox synagogue, so the women were all dressed very modestly, showing no skin except for their hands and faces. Married women covered their hair with wigs or scarves. Women were kept separate from the men, hidden by a partition so as not to create a distraction for the men. This was never framed as a failure on the part of men, but as a sinful quality of women. If we're too attractive, we divert focus away from God, so we need to hide ourselves and stay quiet. As a girl, I was able to run freely and visit my grandfather in the men's section. When I was about 10 or 11 years old, certainly before puberty even started, I innocently began to head over to my grandfather as I was used to doing when an intimidating man stopped me and angrily told me to return to the women's section. I felt demeaned, belittled, scared and confused, but was powerless to do anything about it. I never stepped out of the women's section again after that. Whether you're Jewish or not, you probably have some familiarity with the rite of passage that takes place when Jewish children turn 12 or 13, the bat or bar mitzvah for girls or boys, respectively. However, since my grandfather followed Orthodox practices, I never had a bat mitzvah. It was only considered essential for boys. I lost my religion when I was 13. My uncle had passed away, and in the midst of my grief, I was very concerned about his soul. I had learned that he would be punished for not adhering to the laws. He didn't keep kosher. He drove on Saturdays. He didn't pray regularly. For the first time in my life, I consciously questioned everything I'd been taught, and I determined that it was bullshit. From that point on, I refused to believe in a punishing, vengeful, and sexist God. It took some time before any aligned sense of spirituality would form for me, but that's when I stopped trying to follow the dogma I had been forced to consume up until that point. And I'll make a note here that these experiences that I'm 
speaking of right now are are unique to me in many ways most jews are not hasidic jews so some of these um, intense rules that i'm referencing here are not what most jews encounter for example most jews attending synagogue the women and the men are not separate but that's reflective of what i was exposed to so please don't assume that this is a representation of Judaism in general. It's just my personal experience. Anyway, when I reflect on that, it's, it's really sad to me now when I think of how different my experience would have been if certain rituals and traditions had been taught differently. For example, I learned that women had to visit the mikvah ritual bathhouse monthly because their periods made them dirty. What if I'd been taught that they were honoring the sacredness of their womb and the holy gift of being able to give life? I know it is framed that way for many Jewish women, but that wasn't how I was taught. No, my religion taught me to be ashamed of being female and to always defer to men. Of course, it's impossible to be Jewish and not be affected by anti-Semitism. In middle school, kids from my school bust with kids from a Catholic school. We'd get on the bus, and they'd throw pennies at us and taunt us to pick them up. Because, yeah, the stereotype that Jews are cheap and money-grabbing and greedy. I'll share at this point that I'm re-recording this episode. It was all set and scheduled for publishing only days after the horrifying attacks on Israeli citizens on October 7th. Initially, I didn't say much more about anti-Semitism because I wanted this episode to be relatable and translatable to other religious experiences. I didn't want to make it too much about me. In light of what is happening in the world around me right now, though, I feel compelled to expand a bit more. And to be completely honest, I'm afraid. I'm scared of revealing here that I'm not only Jewish, but Israeli. At this time, in the eyes of some people, those truths mean that I should be killed, that my children deserve to be killed, or that we should at least be hated. Is it possible for you to fathom how that feels? Bringing it back to my origins, as a child, I learned about the Holocaust early. As students, we were shown many images of the atrocities, emaciated figures with hollow eyes, piles of dead bodies, children and babies wailing without parents. We were told of horrifying stories, skin turned into lampshades and terrible testing on human bodies. As a highly sensitive person, all of this was especially difficult to take in. The horror and sadness filled my little body. All of us as children knew that the horrible images we were looking at could have been photos of our own families. We knew we could have been killed had we been unfortunate enough to have been born in a different place in time. We knew that it didn't even matter if, if we practiced our religion, if we were born Jewish, if our grandparents were born Jewish or our parents, if there was any trace of Jewish in us, we'd be targeted. Some of us had grandparents that bore their, their numbers tattooed on their arms. 
I knew that I looked the part. My Israeli heritage is visible. I, I look Jewish in many ways. I knew I wouldn't have been able to hide behind blonde hair or blue eyes, the Aryan ideal, had I lived at that place and time. I knew that people still hated us. I knew that there are groups that exist in this world who want us dead, which made it very scary to socialize with non-Jews. I've always been very cautious about who I disclose this aspect of myself to. I've felt afraid enough my whole life to keep my Jewishness private whenever possible. This became even more pronounced when I moved from the Northeast to the Southeast in my early 20s. My first job as a counselor was in a small rural community. The number one question I was asked when I started there was, what church do you go to? I didn't live in that small community and I had attended a couple of non-denominational services. So I bullshitted and blew off the question with a vague, oh, a church close to my house in Asheville. To which I received the response, oh good, as long as you go. I was terrified people would find out I'm not, nor have ever been Christian. In the end, they were a wonderful and loving community who embraced me, but I always felt I had to hide parts of myself to be safe. Given the acts of anti-Semitism currently erupting across the globe, as well as fierce anti-Israel sentiments, I see my concern has always been justified. My Jewish-Israeli origins reinforce the story that I don't belong and I am not safe. However, I'm working with the scared little girl inside of me to reassure her that regardless of what may be happening in the world, I am valuable, lovable, and every bit as worthy of life as anyone else. And since being both Jewish and Israeli seems to cause people to assume that I wish death and destruction on the Palestinian people. I'll note how utterly absurd this is. I wish peace and belonging for all. I pray that humanity heals and rises to a level where that's possible. Coming back to your origin story, were you raised with religion? If so, How did it affect your beliefs about yourself or the world as a child? How does that story affect you now? If not, how did not having religion shape your origin story? What are your thoughts about religion in general? Do you think it's a necessary or at least valuable aspect of a happy life? Personally, I see both the good and the harm religion can do. And it's important here to make the distinction between religion and spirituality because they are definitely not the same. Religion, of course, ought to be spiritual, but all too often it's not. Many people simply follow rules or engage in performative acts that mean nothing to them. If religion does not include spirituality, it's dangerous. People may lose autonomy, personal power, and critical thinking. They may be manipulated into giving money or other personal assets, or adhering to hateful and harmful beliefs. If religion taps into a universal energy, honors and respects humanity, offers gentle and loving guidance, and procures a sense of meaning to life, well then it's a beautiful thing. 
I believe in the power of prayer, but I don't think we need to pray in a specific prescribed way. Most often, people turn to prayer when there's a problem or something they want help with. I believe in praying with gratitude all of the time for all that is precious and going well. As a kid, I'd begged God to help me with so many things that he, and he never seemed to come through, which felt like another rejection, further proof that somehow I was unworthy or not doing things right. But I was never taught to give thanks in prayer for my many blessings. I suggest you follow up this episode with a prayer of gratitude. There's always something to be thankful for, even if it's a sunny day or the roof over your head or the taste of your tea. You might also meditate. Sit quietly and clear your mind. Make an effort to tune in and tap into a universal consciousness. If that's too difficult or vague, Simply sit with awareness on your breath for a few minutes or put on a guided visualization. Take a moment to intentionally connect with your own divine nature. In closing, I'll say check on your Jewish friends. They're probably not okay. If you don't have any Jewish friends, make some and you'll discover that we're not so different from you after all. And if you want to be supportive of your Jewish friends, simply ask them how they're doing. Listen and validate their feelings. Acknowledge their fears. They definitely don't need a history lesson or a political debate. They don't need to hear your opinion of Israel or your proposed solutions to the conflict. They need your compassion. They need you to be an ally. We need to hear more people saying never again. We need this to come through, even while hearing these cries of free Palestine. Please hear me. Repeat it. Never again. Once again, I thank you for joining me here, and I look forward to connecting again soon. Until then, Sending you all blessings and love. Be well. Thank you for listening to Blue Hour. To find out more about me, Adina Arden Cooper, and my work, visit my website at firebirdcreative.me. You can also follow me on Instagram at fire.bird.creative. If you liked this episode, please share it. And if you like this podcast, please review and subscribe. Join me for the next episode. Until then, I'll leave you with the words of Rumi, famed 13th century Persian poet, scholar, and mystic. Wherever you are, and whatever you do, be in love.